Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. Hello, my chickens. Every time I say, I'm so excited for this conversation, and then every time I say, I always say that, but it's true. But I think that today, you know, there are topics that I talk about that apply to everybody. There are topics I talk about that are a little more niche or niche, depending on how you pronounce that. But I really think today, the topic that we're going to talk about today is something that literally anybody who has a body has experienced, which is when your body doesn't follow your manual. And what we mean by that is like basically when your body behaves in a way that you would prefer it didn't behave when your body isn't doing what you want. And so for some of us, that may be like a daily occurrence. For some of us, it might be more occasional. But I think if you live in a human body, if this hasn't happened to you, you're very young, probably. (laughs) It's going to eventually happen to you just by the law of statistics and getting older. So we are going to dig into that today why that is so challenging for so many of us, how we try to control that, how, as usual, trying to control something we can't control makes everything feel worse. So I'm here with two of my students who are amazing coaches, Deb and Michelle, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell you guys a bit about what they do. We can start with Deb and then Michelle. Hello. My name is Deb Malkin, and I am a chronic pain coach, and I take a, like a weight-neutral approach. I'm also pretty radical bad acceptance origin background. So I help people work on their mind-body relationship to the sensations in their body, to chronic pain and conditions, and help folks create a sense of wellness that is based on like their own determination, but also understanding how pain is created in the brain and a lot of the sciencey stuff. So I help people like blend what we know about pain and science with their lived experience. Great. What about you, Michelle? Hey, chickens. I'm so excited that I got to say hi to the chickens. (laughs) I'm Michelle Kapler, and I'm a feminist life coach for women and people with eggs and ovaries who are going through challenges with their reproductive health. And I help them to reduce stress, anxiety, and overwhelm with the coaching tools that I use so they can prevent or begin to heal from health-related burnout. Most of my work is with folks who are using fertility treatments like IVF to make and grow their families. And I'm also a fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, and I'm a board-certified specialist in the area of reproductive endocrinology and gynecology with the Acupuncture and TCM Board of Reproductive Medicine. So I help local people in clinical practice with acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and I offer coaching to folks for from all over the world who are looking to manage their mind around their reproductive health concerns. Awesome. So both of you specialize in different ways with in working with people who whose bodies are maybe not doing what they want them to do, right? Who are having kind of that, like what I would call sort of, well, at least I experience it often as sort of this adversarial relationship, right? With my body of like, ugh, like, why are you doing this? Or like, why does it have to be this way, right? We get, I think what our body does something that we don't want it to do or doesn't do something we do want it to do or feels the way we don't want it to feel, it can feel we can get this sort of like adversarial relationship to it, right? Just like we can have with a small child or somebody else who isn't following our manual when we don't really stop and think about it. But I, so I would sort of actually just love to start with hearing how you, I actually kind of want to like start with the personal maybe, and then go to the kind of general. So like how you 
came, like, I think we all, we all come to the work because it's happening for us, right. In some way. So like how you kind of came to this work and what your personal experience has been with having your body, not follow your manual for how it should behave. You want to start Michelle? Sure. So it's interesting because I've had over 12 years of clinical experience caring for other people when their bodies aren't following their manuals. And I was kind of, I guess I was a little bit ignorant to the fact that it was kind of going on in my own life, in my own ways. And I think the biggest thing that hit me, and this was especially during ACFC, the Advanced Certification in Feminist Coaching, because you really ask us to bring all of these issues to the table for coaching. And so I got some amazing coaching throughout the program from Deb in particular. And so what I noticed was that I was so able to have so much compassion and understanding for my patients and clients who were going through difficulties and running into health challenges. But I found it incredibly difficult to have that same compassion for myself. And so my own stuff was hormone issues, uh, insomnia, BS symptoms. I remember getting coached by somebody on one of the calls and talking about all my fun digestive concerns and just getting it all out on the table. That was but, me, I think. I remember coaching yeah, that, about this. That was you. That yeah. Was and so it was really interesting to work through that from a personal perspective because, oh, of course, with my health concerns, no, I had this really black and white perfectionistic view that was very much rooted in healthism, where there is a particular set of actions that one should be able to take to attain quote unquote optimal health. And if you're unable to action your way to a particular health outcome, you're therefore morally inferior. And it was just interesting to see how that totally played out with my own health challenges, but not so much with my patients. So that was a big light bulb moment for me in the last year. I think let's just pause on that like healthism because that's such a big part of this, right? And most people have never even heard that word, right? But healthism is exactly what Michelle's saying, like the belief system that health is moral and everybody should be as healthy as possible. And that health is, you know, sort of universal, like there's good health that people should be getting to and that it's something we can control with our actions. So if you ask most people like, are you a healthist? They would be like, no, or I don't know what that means or whatever. Right. But if you ask people like, do you feel guilty if you don't exercise enough or if you eat a piece of cake, or do you think that like people who have certain kinds of conditions made that happen to themselves and deserve it and should have done things differently. Most of us have these beliefs in one way or another. Right. And we have like, I mean, it's sort of fascinating. This would be a different podcast, but we have all sorts of unspoken cultural scripts about like which health outcomes are like bad in your fault and then which are just like bad luck and which are, you know, not morally problematic and then which we blame people for. And like all of that is this complicated association of health and virtue that is not really new. This isn't, you know, I think anthropologically, there's like a long relationship between people thinking that sickness or differently shaped bodies within outside of some range are a sign of you know, sort of being cursed or of unworthiness or whatever. So there's like a lot of I think, complicated anthropological stuff under this, but we certainly still have it and we don't really talk about it. What about you, Deb? How did you end up kind of working on this? I think as a fat person and, you know, I grew up with being given the message always that my body was wrong. 
And so that was a message that was imprinted upon me as a young child, which ironically took me away from all the activities that I was enjoying and doing and putting me into a box of focusing all of my energy on managing and changing my body size, mm-hmm. which is like deeply problematic. Yeah. And as we know through, I mean, we talked about this in the advanced certification, kind of the history of diet culture, that there is now, you know, obesity, which is not a word that I love, but it's now considered a disease. So we've diseased people's bodies, some people's bodies based on size, not based on any kind of marker of health, like all of the ways that we, you know, can kind of externally decide whether, you know, what people's health outcomes are. And all of that is so complex. And so for me, it's always been like, I always thought health was just something that wasn't really mine to have. And only now am I looking back, like now that I understand pain and I understand kind of like the nervous system, like half the time I was checked out because I, anytime I felt something just like uncomfortable, I just assumed that it was like my body was broken because it was fat. Mm -hmm. Like I remember going to a chiropractor for the first time in my twenties only because some fat activists that I had known had like somebody else had talked about going to a chiropractor and I was like, Oh, I could go to a chiropractor. Like it never dawned on me that there were things that like people in my body size did that were like kind of normal, you know, normalized health things. So it's just been a lot of unlearning and relearning and becoming my own body authority and learning to do things like love hiking in my 40s, which is a weird thing <laughs> to say. And like whether or not that's somebody's goal, but it's it's like kind of like this process of almost like being a rebellious body and then kind of learning how to claim health for myself. And I've ended up learning to love movement and teach movement and be a body worker and start to think about bodies in a very different way than anything I've ever learned from a medical provider or kind of like out in the world, what we think about fatness. So that's definitely been my own process and journey. And I had my own kind of pain recovery story and coaching has been like this incredible tool to help me become my own authority That for me is like, regardless of what's going on in my body, because there were a number of times over the last two years that I'd been very sick. And, you know, even Cara had coached me at one point when I thought like, oh, maybe I have cancer. And she was like, okay, so yeah, what if you do? And it was was like, oh, I kept waiting. You know, I was like noticing I was worrying all the time. And like, I was like, almost like I had to know this answer before I could decide what I was going to do with my life. So I don't know what the question was. I'm on a journey. <laughs> That's okay. We can, Welcome we can to bring my it, brain. Bring it back in. Board. So Let's one of the things, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that we want to talk about on this episode is the, what we call it, what we're calling or people call the wellness paradox, right? Which is this sort of like the idea that paradoxically trying to like constantly get healthier, get well can actually like make us feel worse 
right? And I know we're going to talk about that in the context of people who are experiencing some kind of illness or chronic pain or physical dysfunction or whatever. But one of the things that kind of came to me as, as Deb was talking was that in the emotional space, we do a lot of work as coaches and kind of explaining to people that like negative emotions are actually a normal part of life. Like nothing has gone wrong when you have a negative emotion. That doesn't mean that you did life wrong or that you're broken. Like actually that is a normal part of the package of being a human. And like, you just had a misconception that that wasn't supposed to happen to you. And I like the same thing I think happens with like kind of quote unquote, ordinary aches and pains, even for people who like don't have chronic pain or don't have a chronic illness or whatever. If you have a belief that there's something wrong with your body, right. Then you interpret any like normal amount of discomfort or physical sensation as being like a sign that something's wrong with you. Right. Or even magnifying. And like, I think about the difference. Sometimes I think a lot about this woman I know who I met through the coaching world, who's an ultra marathoner. So she's like the number two women's ultra marathoner in the world. Right. So she runs like hundred mile races all the time. She does not run those things in a state of like, well, nothing hurts and nothing aches. And I just feel amazing because my body just loves to run a hundred miles and I'm not tired and I feel fine. Right. She is experiencing like all sorts of physical sensations during that process that if I felt them, I would make mean that like it's because of my size or because I'm not athletic or because I have chronic pain or because I've broken. Right. So there's this way in which healthism, the same way that like, we don't really have a word for it, but like, happyism, like the sort of denial of negative emotion, just Americanism, like the denial of negative emotion and suffering as a part of life makes us like freak out and misinterpret anytime we have a negative emotion and think we're broken or there's something wrong with us. Healthism makes us think that like the normal set of physical sensations that being in a body entails, which is like sometimes being tired or sometimes something aching or sometimes being uncomfortable is like a sign of dysfunction that we need to like wellness culture our way out of. And so I'm curious for your guys' thoughts about that and kind of about the wellness paradox more generally. You want to start us off, Michelle? Well, just to add to what you were saying, I think you can even take that a little bit further into the idea of developing symptoms or conditions that are beyond just generalized aches and pains that all bodies go through. Because in healthism, there's this idea that if you get sick, if your body breaks down, if you show vulnerability then there is either something that you are doing wrong or that there is something inherently wrong with you. But the truth is that all bodies get sick at some point. We all have that Achilles heel or that quote unquote weakness in one system or another in our bodies, and it's all different for everybody. But I think there's even a step further that you can take where there's an acceptance of, oh, I'm living in this thing that's actually day by day getting closer and closer to dying. And disease and breaking down and vulnerability is just a part of that. And it has nothing to do with our inherent human worth. I just had like an intense moment when you said just just day by day getting closer to dying. Like <laughs> that was in it. I'm not usually shocked by references to mortality. I feel like that's most of Jewish humor, but like that was a very <laughs> sorry to take things down like way down the hole. I just no, but I but that's important, sense. right? Because that's what so much of this is, is like I and it's not just it's like healthism, diet culture, beauty culture, like all of these kinds of maniacal pursuits of physical perfection as if if we just get good enough at it, then we can be immortal. We're never going to die. We're not getting older. Our bodies aren't changing. 
right? Yeah, and, and like, that's reinforced on a regular basis by things like the infinite amounts of information and influence that social media has. For example, we get these one-dimensional views where it's just a snippet, a moment in time. And of course, people are usually putting their best foot forward. I mean, I think it's happening more, which I think is a great trend, but there aren't a lot of people out there talking about their period cramps and their endometriosis and their other health struggles. Yeah. And also there's like every naturally thin person in the world now can be on Instagram telling you how eating only cabbage and nothing else cured their IBS while somebody else is telling you eating only meat and nothing else cured their IBS or whatever, right? There's like such a proliferation of kind of healthish nonsense out there that I think it sort of contributes this idea that sort of we are all supposed to constantly be working on like a wellness project, right? It's like we're all like, I think a lot about this critique that Laura Kipnis, who's a media scholar made of monogamy, where she talks about, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with monogamy. Some of my best friends are monogamous and they love it. It's not about that, but just, she talks about, it's like, she's a media critic. She talks about the language, right? So it's like, she just talks about the way that the language of capitalism and work has like infused even relationships where it's like, we're always supposed to be working on it. There's just the way that the sort of capitalism, you know, makes work the central component and identity and like project that we're all engaged in. Everything becomes a work of some kind. And that I think that's true of like wellness and healthism, right? It's another thing that's just like diet culture. You can never get to perfection. So you're always supposed to be working on it because you can always be better and better at it. And there's no point at which you're allowed to just be in a body that feels different ways sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And not be constantly trying to improve it. And it's, I think, a big challenge for those of us who are in the self-development industry, (laughs) right? Who like try to help people live lives, better lives or lives that feel better to them or lives that where they are living with more intention and control to not fall in the trap of like exacerbating that problem. For me, that's like the heart of one of the kind of pain recovery. And I kind of hate the word recovery, but it's a useful word because people are, you know, it's actually, it is different than pain management. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a useful word to distinguish from that. And there's a scientific reason why. But oftentimes people can get stuck in the loop of working on recovering from pain. And that's not the point. The point is to feel connected to your life, you know, like be involved in your kind of vitality and aliveness without the always tripping over, catastrophizing fear, anxiety, and worry about your health. And the symptoms that often arise are often mitigated by fear. And that's one of the things that we work on the most. Wait, they're mitigated by fear or they're exacerbated by fear? They're exacerbated by fear. I I was like, really? I've been doing that backwards. Yeah, yeah, they're they're doing it backwards. Nope, I just used the wrong word, which is amazing. (laughs) Thank you for catching that. They're exacerbated by fear. And I think it's really important for anybody doing this work and for anybody listening is like, our health is not only our personal responsibility, nor is it like, our personal construction. Like if we bring the nervous system into the body and think about like pain and symptoms and the volume of symptoms based on kind of like the nervous system being the modulator of fear, it's like if you can't not go to work when you're sick 
because then you can't pay your bills and all of the things like there's no sick time. Like that's not your fault, right? That's the system making you go to work, right? Creating the ill health. Like if we don't have the time and the space to recover from illness, that's a threat. That's a social threat, right? And we often have this, you know, COVID in general kept us away from each other. That is a threat to our health and well-being. So health itself is complex. It involves the body and the mind. And I think like the way, at least in this country, not everybody has access to health care. Not everybody is able to, yeah, have that ability to take time off. Because sometimes what we need to do to feel better is just to stop what we're doing. And there's so many, I think, like, I think part of what you're bringing out is that there's so many determinants of health, but what sort of quote unquote wellness culture and healthism focus on are really just diet and exercise, right? Because also that's what can be commodified and sold to you, Mm -hmm. right? So there are all these other determinants of health, like obviously your genetics, which they can't package and sell to you a way to change yet your epigenetics, the things that happened to your ancestors that, or your sort of, you know, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents that changed their genetic code, your sleep, where you live, the pollution that might be around you, your social connection, right? Like the number one predictor of longevity is social connection. All of these things that like capitalism hasn't figured out how to commodify and sell back to you over and over and over again. And so nobody's really talking about that. Like you don't see huge campaigns to sell you like friendship in a box, just unpack this. And like, here's how to have more social connection because that's not a product that can't be commodified, right? A lot of the things that contribute to human health, like optimism and happiness also like acceptance and acknowledgement of our own emotional experience or suffering, like mindset work. I mean, we do sell mindset work in a way, but like, these are things that can't be sort of unlike the diet industry, you can't just like package them over and over again in different ways and sell them to people. And so there are things that impact your health that you can sometimes do some things about, but we are constantly just focused on eating and exercise in this like both moral and capitalist way that really, I think, gives people a really warped view of what health is, what affects it, and what they do have control over or don't have control over. So like you can spend... I mean, this is how you end up like with orthorexia as a big problem. You've got like, you can be spending all of your time trying to eat cleaner and cleaner in a way that is actually stressing you out and probably making you sick. Or you could like go for a walk, eat an ice cream cone with a friend, create some social connection in your life. And actually that probably calms your nervous system and has more of a health promoting effect than stressing out over which squash has more calories in the grocery store for an hour and then going home and not eating anything. Right, yeah, like you are things. totally talking about my story. Like that's my journey through ECFC. <laughs> and I just want to say I am one of quite a few people who are now eating gluten because of ACFC. <laughs> this is my legacy. I'm like, well, people learn to change their thoughts, but more importantly, we're all eating gluten. Again. The- Sadly, I still can't eat gluten, which really makes me mad. I really wanted mine to be. <laughs> so tell us about that experience, Michelle. Not gluten specifically necessarily, but just that kind of what your experience was of this. Well, I mean, gluten's an interesting one because it has been kind of warped and promoted through diet culture and the wellness industry as avoiding gluten automatically makes you healthy. And this Mm -hmm. is true in the context of having celiac disease, but a lot of people just avoid gluten as a weight loss tactic or a way to stay thin. And it's interesting because 
as I pulled this apart through ACFC and went through my own, because I mean, IBS is one of my things. And then that trajectory of kind of having a smaller and smaller window of foods that you feel safe around and that orthorexic picture where you're kind of afraid to eat anything because anything might set you off. And then recognizing that the real effect that that has on our nervous system. But yeah, I mean, just getting coached on, well, what is the reality of the effect of that on your body? Is it more the stress that you're experiencing that's actually causing the symptoms or contributing to the symptoms or exacerbating them? Or is it actually the food itself? And so I've had this really pleasant and also horrible, emotionally painful experience of just (laughs) going through the motions of, okay, I'm just, I guess I'm just going to eat all the foods and see what happens. And it really hasn't been as bad as I thought it would be. (laughs) that's the best. I was just talking to a client this morning also who's like, I'm eating all the foods and it's not as terrible as I thought it would be. And right. It's leaving room open for mystery. Like I had like a 10 year bout of like being allergic to peanuts, which was like, I had an allergic reaction to peanuts and then I stopped eating them for a decade. Was I allergic to them the whole time? Probably not. Like I did have that reaction. There's things that you can do, medical tests that you can get, information that you can get, but also it's like we can create safety with feeling stuff. It's like our bodies are just, we're just meant to feel stuff. We're not meant to have the same experience every day, especially for people who have menstrual cycles. We all have hormones. Like why we never talk about these things. I have no idea. When I went through menopause, I was a crazy person. And I was like, why am I only hearing now when I'm feeling rage all the time? And I finally Googled like perimenopause and moods, you know, that I was like, oh, this is from inside my body. That's not great. But nobody told me this was going to happen. So I just was like thinking there was something wrong with me. And I was like, oh, no, this is a natural yet unpleasant experience that I'm having that is completely normal. That's such a good example, though. Once I learned it, though, I just want to say once I realized it was normal, I was in so much less distress. And that is that problem of healthism that's like the goal is to always feel amazing all the time. So if we're ever going to talk about anything that doesn't feel amazing, it's just in the context of solving it. So it's like one line about, are you feeling perimenopausal rage? And then it's like 17 paragraphs of how if you eat celery juice every day, you won't, and you can buy that person's cleanse to solve it, right? So there's just like no discussion of this is what normal aging or changing is like. And you hear, you know, people who are new mothers going through this or people who have born children and being like, nobody told me what that after period was going to be like. Like nobody told me what it was going to feel like after I'd physically given birth. We just don't talk about these things generally, unless wellness culture is going to sell you something to supposedly solve it, right? And that's the same with, I think, emotions. Like we don't talk about the complete normalcy and really desirability of having a life filled with different kinds of emotional experiences. We only talk about negative emotions when we're trying to, when someone is trying to sell you something to solve them, right? It's like make them go away. Like if you just never be gluten again, you'll never be sad. Like all of this sort of <laughs> like complete nonsense. But I remember coaching Michelle, and I think what you went through with this and what we coached on in ACFC is what so many people do, which is like, I remember asking you, like, what would it be like if you ate gluten and didn't shame yourself? And you were just like, I don't understand what you're saying. I was like, like, I don't understand the question. 
Yeah. You were like, that's bad. Then I'm bad. What What are you, an idiot? I paid you all this money for ACFC and you don't understand? Like, what's... Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> but when we're in it, we're all in it, right? I mean, so many people carry that shame and like, you know, diet culture and healthism, it's like a Venn diagram, right? People have this about diet in ways that are not about health, but then there's other health stuff, like whatever it is, not taking your probiotics, not working out, not whatever. I think we even see that like, oh no, I'm stressed. Stress is bad for my health. Now I'm shaming myself about being stressed, right? This kind of like insanity. And I do feel like so much of what we're talking about comes from, I cannot prove this at all, but when you were talking about perimenopause and like, why do we think we're always supposed to feel the same? I feel like I like to blame everything on industrialization, but I kind of feel like that's true. It's like the factory. It's like, everything's the same. Everything should be repeatable. Like it's like, we're supposed to be plastic kind of like, we're just supposed to be this inert substance that's always feeling the same thing, which is happy and excited to buy products. <laughs> like That is how we should always be feeling. Yeah. I mean, human people who have needs are inconvenient for jobs, right? right. When you're like, show up to work and you're like, oh, I kind of feel terrible, right? Your job's like- Yeah. Or like who might have a reaction to the pollution is inconvenient for, right? The bottom line of a company that want that makes more money if it pollutes. I saw this, like, I like, can't get over this. <laughs> this guy that I I know through family, he founded like a biotech company and then now, and it went public. So, you know, then he became a billionaire, I think, and with predictable results. And so now he's launching. <laughs> so now he launched a like investment platform for energy companies and I got an email about it yesterday. That's why it's on my mind. The like mission statement is like to sort of incentivize energy companies to do whatever is best for the company long-term with no regard to any like quote unquote social agenda. Like it's literally just like, like a new radical idea where energy companies should just destroy the earth to make more money and not have any concern about like the impacts on people. But I think that, you know, you're right. Like the sort of, people having variable physical experiences, needing different kinds of support, like needing to take time off because they're sick, because they're birthing, because whatever's happening is inconvenient for industrial economies. Just to jump off of that today, I was reading Reagan Chastain, who's a really fabulous like health educator, especially in the realm of weight science. And she was talking about, you know, how... Big Pharma manipulates data because their job is, you know, they're like beholden to their shareholders, not to the people who are taking the medicines. Right. And so, you know, we have short-term studies that they make grand claims on. Same thing with the opioid crisis. I mean, we all know, is it the Purdue family? Yeah. And so- it all goes towards health though, right? It's like, these are the things when we talk about health, like you don't see TV advertisements that are like, talk to a friend, actually just enjoy a scoop of ice cream and take a good nap. It's, do you have restless leg syndrome? Buy this drug, right? Ask your doctor about this drug. Like, and obviously I don't, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else. I am not like anti-pharmaceutical in the sense of, I think there are a lot of life-saving pharmaceuticals. And then also it's an industry with incentives like any other, right? It's not black and white. Like, big fan of penicillin and the COVID vaccine, mm-hmm. opioids may be problematic the way that they were developed, but it's just, it's that same thing of like the place I kind of want to take this conversation. And so I think this is the bridge to it is like, 
you know, we're talking at this kind of theoretical level, but how can people start using this in their own thought work, in their practice? And one of the things I love is just the question, which I, you know, saw somewhere on Instagram. So whoever's this is, I am crediting you. It's like completely lost to the histories of social media who wrote it first. And also a lot of these ideas just circulate forever until someone puts them in a meme. But it's sort of like the meme or the tweet or something was like that, you know, whenever I feel bad about myself, I just like think about how some old white man is making money off of that. And then I stop because I don't have time for that. But I like to turn it into this question, which is like, when you feel bad about yourself, where did that come from? And is somebody making money off of it? Right. And if someone is making money off of it, I mean, you always want to interrogate it, but especially if someone's making money off of it, right? Like if when you start to feel bad about yourself, the impulse is like, oh, I need to like buy that special food that's three times the cost of the normal version because that one has adaptogens and then I'll be able to feel good about myself or like, or whatever else, right? Or I need to like buy that weight loss cleanse or I need to like, is there an industry that profits off of you feeling bad about this thing? Then that's a place to start with looking at where those thoughts came from and whether you really want to keep thinking them. But what do you guys suggest? How do you help people use this stuff kind of concretely? Well, I think to go back to that idea of how it plays out in real time, in the fertility wellness industry, it's definitely influenced by diet culture and healthism in a big way. And I talk a lot in my work about the perfect potion, which can be demonstrated in any kind of health condition, but we see this a lot in infertility online spaces, which is somebody attains whatever the goal is. And in this context, it's conceiving and carrying to term and having a baby. And then they go on and they either become an influencer and they sell their program or they just go onto the chat rooms and they say, yeah, I did it. I got pregnant. And then everybody says, well, what did you do? I want to do that too. Will it work for me? And everybody is constantly looking for this perfect prescription of actions that they can take, eat the right diet, do the right exercises, take the right supplements, you know, meditate on a full moon, breathe correctly, go to acupuncture and get needles in your eyeballs four times a week. I mean, people say the most interesting things on these forums. And then the downside to that is one, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made by influencers selling programs to quote unquote, optimize fertility. But that kind of creates this dissonance because bodies just don't work like that. One solution that works for somebody will not universally work for everybody. And that's any therapy, that's medicine, that's diets, that's any kind of treatment that you can do for health condition. There's just no universal solution. And I would also say further to that, there's this idea that there's just so much that we still don't know about how human bodies work. There's so much that science and medicine doesn't even have language for yet. We don't know why somebody that looks exactly the same on paper via their labs and their medical data and their lifestyle, like theoretically would look the same as person B, but person A would get pregnant, but person B wouldn't. So there's still a lot of unknown that you're playing with as well. Yeah. So I think what one of the things we can take from that is like, I think so much of our work is just about like giving yourself a break, <laughs> like not believing that you should be able to or can and are failing to completely control your body and all your health outcomes and your physical experience of the world, right? Like you can notice that, you know, I once had this conversation with somebody who was a very active 
drug user and they were then taking a medication like an opioid blocker to sort of block. Right. And they said to me, they were like really frustrated. They were like, it's just, you know, like some days I take it, I wake up and I take it, I feel amazing. And then like some days I just don't feel, I don't feel any better. And I was kind of like, yeah, that's, this is normal. Like you're not supposed to feel amazing every day, right? You're not supposed to be able to control your mood by the minute with what you ingest or how you act, right? Like so much of this comes back to that desire. So just having compassion, like noticing when that's what you're trying to do. And it's like so normal. I had, I got fucking nothing done today before this podcast. Like I had a slate of work today and I could not get anything done. And my brain is just like, it's probably because you ate a tortilla for breakfast. Like what? That doesn't even make any sense. I eat tortillas all the time, but like that patterning is so deep. But the difference is like, in the past, I would have been like, oh, yeah, it is. Beat myself up, make a plan to go on a diet, whatever, all of this. And this time I was just like, I don't know, man. Sometimes you just have a day that you're not that focused. And like, that's okay. That's just what's happening in my brain today. I just chill out. I'll probably get a lot done tomorrow, right? As opposed to beating myself up about it and believing all these lies I've been taught that I should be able to be consistently exactly productive in the same mood and that my body is like a machine that I should be able to turn the dials with exactly what I eat, exactly how I move, what supplements do I take, what meditation do I do so that I can like get this feeling always good. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to notice that when you begin to do this work and you learn about these themes of, okay, yeah, now I know about healthism and diet culture and I can see it happening in real time. And then the idea is to not freak out because your brain does go to those places at first, because your brain might always go to those places at first. I might always think, oh, what did I eat that was wrong every time I get bloated for the rest of my life? But the hope is that each time I might be able to notice it and think about something else a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker each time. Yeah. And a little more kinder to yourself. Like it's the human condition to sometimes be bloated, right? Yes. Of course. If like you really notice a certain food, well, like not, this always gets taken. I feel like anytime we talk about this, it gets distorted to like, so you're saying people should just eat nails all day long and it doesn't matter what you put in your body. Like no one is saying that, yeah. <laughs> right? Like obviously there are things like when I eat spicy food, I get a lot of heartburn. I don't love spicy food. I just avoid it. I don't know. It could be neuroplastic, but I've just decided that's not a big cost to my life and I'm fine not eating it or whatever, right? Like it's not, the point isn't like never do anything that you think is health promoting, but the point is broaden your perspective on what's health promoting. Like first instance, for sure, what we know is that shitting on yourself constantly for not being perfect is not health promoting. So the extent you're doing that, that is not doing you any favors. And we know actually from studies that self-compassion is health promoting. So even if that's all you swapped out, right? You would actually be doing something more health promoting than like trying to micro-engineer your diet. Absolutely. And what's so interesting is the bloating can be a cue for self-compassion. Like, again, I had a client this morning and she used to be afraid of bloating and now she's like super excited about farting. I did not come, like that was her own creation. And I work was like, with Deb and you'll become super like, work with me and you'll start eating gluten and then work with Deb and you'll be super well, excited about farting. I, yes, it's been like lots of talking about poop and farting <laughs> and vomit are some of the wow. things in coaching that I cover. <laughs> but a lot of those things people have fear around, right? So it's like we're always working with creating friendship. Like that's one of my main conversations is like the goal is not to 
manage the body or manage symptoms, but to begin to explore deeper and deeper this inner conversation. And the inner conversations that like the subconscious beliefs about your body are stuff that you've gotten from your childhood and from watching your parents and from like what people told you about your body and the commercials and the people you watch on Instagram and like just the random brain farts that happen in your mind. And every time you like, you know, feel tired walking up the stairs, you start the mental conversation about how you're going to go on a diet, right? It's like some of these things become these automated thought habits loops that when we slow down and interrogate them, we get to decide on purpose, really what we want to believe. And in the investigating, not just the thinking, but the relationship between the thoughts and then the sensations in our body, then you really can like know what you feel, like get more information and just start to even identify the difference between anxiety and like just random, you know, how you felt after you ate something. Right. And we know that much like <laughs> the body is like inflation. If you think there's going to be inflation, you'll cause inflation, right? If you assume, if you expect to have heartburn, you expect to have bloating, whatever it is, that's often what you're going to create. That doesn't mean that there aren't some foods that also may impact your body that way. This is not about an either or extremist thing, right? But I think for everybody, if the first thing you can start doing is just practicing that self compassion, that's even just the acceptance of like, it is normal for a human body to feel different ways at different times. So like, it is normal for a human body to experience fluctuations in mood or in energy or in how it feels. Like there's this paradox where people, we know this from all coaching, people don't want to accept something because then they think they won't change it. Right. But we all know that it's the other way around <laughs> by constantly rejecting it, believing it shouldn't happen, believing it means something's gone wrong. You are actually making it very hard to see what, if anything, is actually wrong or changeable, right? Like mm-hmm. the way that I think about it is some things are changeable, some things aren't, but you can't fucking tell the difference when you are not willing to accept your own experience. So when you accept your experience, when you're willing to stop judging yourself and shitting on yourself for it, then you get the space to see like, oh, this thing might be changeable or this thing might not be. And how can I have acceptance of that experience throughout? So I think like, if you're listening to this, you're like, okay, what can I practice now is pick your thing. Your thing might be your energy, might be your mood. It might be your heartburn. It might be your joints, whatever it is, but just pick your thing and practice. Like it is like the normal human experience to have variation in this thing to feel bloated sometimes, to feel joint pain sometimes, whatever it is. I also, I want to jump in and also say for people who do have like diagnoses or do have like, you know, diseases or are sick in whatever way that means, there still can be a difference and lots of room to identify moments of like feeling better within whatever the bouncy house of health you've got going on. Yeah. And your reaction to what you feel impacts your emotional experience of it. Mm -hmm. So even if you have, if you have a broken leg, we're not saying like, well, if you just accept it, you might find out it's not broken. That's not what anybody's saying. Right. But the sensations you have about the leg, the emotions you have about the leg, all of that impacts how your body feels. And if you are able to practice acceptance of the broken leg, that it is broken and not shame yourself or judge yourself or blame yourself, you're going to find that you're even the experience of that circumstance. There are health circumstances. The experience of it can be so, so different for you. 
And also acceptance doesn't equal like the worst thing you're afraid of happening. I think that's also sometimes Mm. is like people are like, if I accept this, then what I'm afraid of happening is true. Mm. That's like a magic trick. Right. Not actually how it works. If I accept it, then my leg falls off. Like, no, that's not. Yeah. That's not how that works. Like we can be in acceptance of what is happening in this moment. And then, you know, we may be surprised. I mean, there are all kinds of people who have all kinds of, you know, predicted health outcomes that don't end up being true. Yeah. Totally. All right, chickens. So don't try so hard to feel better all the time. Enjoy feeling worse and you'll actually feel better. That's the, that's the case emotionally and physically. Thank you for coming on, my friends. Where can people find more about you? So I'm mostly on Instagram. You can find me by searching my name, Michelle Kapler. And then I also have a podcast that's specifically for folks using fertility treatments to grow their families called the Infertility Stress Podcast. You can search that anywhere that you find your podcasts. And if you want to work with me, I do one-on-one coaching. I have clinical practice. And then my membership is starting in the fall for people who want to do it in community. And you can find all that at michellecapler.com. Right, you, Deb. I am, let's see, on Instagram at movewithdeb and online at movewithdeb.com. I have a one-on-one pain recovery coaching program and also a podcast. What's your podcast called? Move with Deb, the podcast. There we go. Because I'm that 80s kid. (laughs) Join the club. All right, my friends. Thank you. Have a good week, everybody. Bye, chicken. Thanks, Tara. Listen up, coaches. If you are a coach of any kind with any experience, certification, non-certification, multiple certifications, <laughs> whatever. If you are a coach, if you are working as a coach, if you are coaching, whether that's one client or 20 clients, and you're listening to this podcast, it is super important that you make sure that you are on my email list that's only for coaches. I have an email list where I keep coaches updated on anything I'm doing that is for coaches and where all of my teaching and information and training and all of that good stuff that's for coaches goes so that this podcast doesn't, you know, just become just for coaches. So if you are listening and you are a coach and you have ever wanted to, or think you may ever want to learn more about feminist coaching from the coach perspective of how to be a better feminist coach, how to bring intersectional feminist principles into your coaching, how to de-hierarchialize, <laughs> de-hierarchy, the coaching relationship, how to create more feminist coaching spaces, how to coach in a way that is more transparent and inclusive and collaborative, all of the feminist coaching principles that I teach, you need to be on this specific email list. So here's how to get on it. Text your email address to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. Again, that's plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. The code word is just the initials ACFC. ACFC. So that stands for the Advanced Certification in Feminist Coaching, which is my advanced certification for coaches, where I certify people to practice 
my feminist coaching principles and framework. And of course, all of that information also goes to this email list. If you have been waiting for us to open up registration again, we only do it once a year. We're coming up on it soon. Applications will open to that list first and applications are done on a rolling basis. So the earlier you apply, the better your chance of getting in. So if you want to know when that's happening, anything related to feminist coaching goes to my feminist coaches list. So again, text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. Use code word ACFC, all the initials, or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash ACFC. Okay, again, unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash ACFC. Make sure you get on that list because that is where all the good coach stuff goes. I'll see you there. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things Unfuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.